it's long been a custom here, maybe 50 years actually, for the opening lecture to do two things. To account for our program of liberal education, often by way of discussing a part of it. And two, to address freshmen principally, but not exclusively. And I'd like to preface my lecture by speaking briefly about this twofold function, since it'll help me strike the main themes of the talk. As to the first, you will recall Mr. Andres giving the opening lecture last year. He spoke on logic and its essential role in liberal education. He took a part of the whole program, namely freshman philosophy, one year out of four, one course out of six that year, and in explaining why we teach that one part, he ably accounted for the whole, for that whole education consists above all in demonstrative knowledge to which logic is ordered. Many of you will remember Mr. Hatchett's lecture the year before. He talked about the two liberal arts of music and astronomy, the double crown, as it were, of all the liberal arts. A small part, if we take the measure to be time spent in class, yet significant in helping show how the liberal arts lead to a life of philosophy and wisdom, exactly what a program of liberal education such as ours seeks to foster. The year before that, many of you may remember Mr. Drigu spoke on the great works of literature we read and discuss in seminar and how they may be said to contain and even teach profound truths. Now, seminar is in total only a quarter of class time, but Mr. Dragoo gave an account of the whole by showing how that part fits with the rest, like the heart, which is vital to the successful operation of the rest of the body, to use the metaphor coined by our founding president, Ron MacArthur. Generally, then, if the parts of our program hang together, and I think they do indeed, then taking one part under examination will in one way or another bring the rest with it. If the curriculum is finely tuned, then even a small part, like music, can reveal the whole. The part I have selected for tonight is a little larger than music, namely natural science. It's worth mentioning here that in the natural science curriculum, you'll find ample opportunity to reflect on this relationship between part and whole. Freshmen will consider an empirical proof that the function of the heart is to circulate the blood through the whole body. But the body's function is not merely to house the heart. That would be circular, not circulatory reasoning. Would it not be better to say the body, our body, especially in its capacity to sense, exists to serve our intellect? and that our heart is fashioned to suit just such a body. Here's a similar example from outside the curriculum, if you allow it. The avian respiratory system, or how birds breathe, is devised so that a continuous supply of oxygen replenishes the blood, even when the bird exhales, making for a one-way airflow, not in and out or oscillating like ours. A dream, perhaps, of you long-distance runners out there. Hmm? But beware, along with a bird lung comes a bird brain. <laughs> Such a finely balanced respiratory system indicates something about the bird itself and its place in the whole of nature. For the bird 
Life is not sedentary, like Rodin's thinker, but active, hyperactive, as busy as a bee, if not busier, because their business is more self-directed, although not self-reflective like the thinkers. And what is their business? Perhaps you've heard of the bar-tailed godwit that was recently tracked flying 11 days straight, over 250 hours, from Alaska to New Zealand, 7,500 miles, nonstop, never landing. Hearing this, we may well imagine how types of plants could spread far and wide across the globe, like the hugely beneficial sunflower family, Asteraceae, that originated millions of years ago in a remote corner of southern South America. Next to the second point of addressing freshmen principally, besides being a courtesy to the uninitiated, more importantly, I think, it serves as a reminder for all of us about the nature of liberal education. No doubt you have heard and will hear again that, Saint, uh, that Thomas Aquinas College is about making a good beginning to the Catholic intellectual life. Such a description is meant in part to distinguish our program from others that aim at specialization, professional careers, or training. With their graduates ready to apply their education, not enter into and continue it. Unlike students in those programs, every student here both starts and ends as a beginner in liberal education. Not, of course, the same beginner. One beginner has a degree. A degree, a level of knowledge, science, and wisdom that makes our graduates ready to live the intellectual life in its entirety. A way of life we hope you will live no matter how you make your living. A taste of wisdom that will linger all your life in the form we call philosophy. Not the philosophy that Dr. Johnson's young friend tried but found wanting because, as he said, cheerfulness kept breaking through. No, not that philosophy. Philosophy, after all, means love of wisdom, or better, friend of wisdom. And what friends are not cheered by each other's company and want it to last a lifetime? So let that suffice for my preface. I will now enunciate my thesis. You already know my title. My thesis is that science is the way to freedom. It echoes our Lord's, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. My echo is attuned to the kind of beginning you make here that sets your feet firmly along the path of freedom. I will argue for this in just a few steps. First, define freedom. Freshmen started considering freedom in the orientation seminars. So this would be a quicker step, but still one worth making. Second, define science, which is ambiguous in modern discourse. I will be careful to establish what we mean here at TAC and how it relates to what most people mean. And step three, connect the two. In defining freedom, we may first consult Homer. Freshmen have already read about and perhaps discussed the pitiable state of the young women Chryseis and Briseis, snatched away from their families as spoils of war and treated like bargaining chips. Later, you will read the Trojan hero Hector pouring out his grief 
when he dwells upon the dismal future of his wife Andromache. I grieve most of all for you, he laments, when the day will come on which some one of the Achaeans shall rob you forever of your freedom and bear you away weeping. It may happen that you will ply the loom in Argos at the bidding of a mistress or fetch water from the springs of Messias or Hyperia sorely against your will and harsh necessity will be pressed upon you. Here, being held captive and forced to labor against one's will is portrayed as the opposite, indeed, privation of being free. Therefore, being free must be conducting one's life as one sees fit. The sketch is somewhere, but not quite far enough for our purposes here tonight. For it's possible to be held captive like Briseis and treated like a piece of property and yet still be free. This is Lady Philosophy's lesson to Boethius. While he was unjustly imprisoned and condemned to death, she points out to him that people might be free to do what they like and yet be captives. Here's what she says. When people are given over to vices and fall from the possession of their proper reason, then indeed their condition is utter slavery. For when they let their gaze fall from the light of highest truth, to the lower world where darkness reigns. Soon, ignorance blinds their vision. They are diseased with poisonous desires by yielding and assenting to which they help to promote the slavery in which they are involved and are in a manner led captive by reason of their very liberty. Ignorance blinds their vision, she says. This is a far more serious kind of captivity. Therefore, the more serious kind of freedom is the opposite, namely, knowledge, as she says, of highest truth. In Boethius's case, he must regain the understanding of his nature. As Lady Philosophy tells him, he has forgotten what he is. If he remembers, and I think it's safe to say he does by the end, then come rack, come rope, he will be free. Notice that Boethius must regain, not newly acquire, an understanding. And by the time of his imprisonment, he has presumably already gone through a course of instruction in philosophy and theology and the liberal arts. Now, to go through such a course requires considerable time and special conditions, all of which can be wrapped up in one word, leisure, a most precious commodity. As Aristotle says in his Metaphysics, the nature of men is in many ways a slave, meaning, I think, the business of obtaining material necessities consumes so much of our time and labor that we have little left with which to pursue the knowledge that will set us free. Thus, the uneducated are twice shackled by ignorance and necessity. Add these two to the first, and we have three ways of being captive. First, in being more or less physically prevented from conducting our own lives. Second, being uneducated or having forgotten about the point of our lives. And third, being preoccupied, distracted, troubled by all the mundane concerns that surround us. 
perhaps the hardest captivity to escape since it can seem so attractive to us. As Aristotle says, it is a strange and remarkable fact that for most of us, necessities seem more desirable, even though the non-necessary things are better. If there are three captivities, then there are three freedoms, which have an order among them. For to conduct ourselves according to our own lights demands that we become educated about ourselves, and to get educated requires leisure. Next to my second step, I want to suggest a definition of science. Once we have that in hand, I hope it will become clear how science and freedom are related. Science is a term you will hear often enough at TAC and quickly come to see that it has a range of meanings. For example, unique, I think, to TAC, theology is defined as a science. In fact, the queen of sciences. It's handmaiden philosophy is a science. Actually, it's four sciences, logic, natural philosophy, ethics, and metaphysics. Mathematics is a science, our go-to when we want to give an example of scientific proof. Grammar and music have scientific parts, speculative grammar and music theory, both of which we study here. I think it's fair to say that there is nothing in the curriculum that is unscientific. If there's a philosophy of it, there's a science of it, one might say. So what is science? Here we can turn to Plato's Mino. Socrates asks Mino's young attendant, what length of side makes a square twice the size of any given square, or how does one double the square? As an aside, a similar question about doubling the cube comes at the end of sophomore math. Look out for that, you sophomores. After a bit of trial and error, the boy determines the answer is the diagonal of the original square. He knows this because he has divided the squares using a common measure, namely the right-angled triangular part that is half the original square and a quarter of the larger. Thus he sees the double relation through an element, that is, through a cause. To express the boy's understanding, Plato uses the word episteme. Aristotle uses the same word in the posterior analytics to signify unqualified known, that is, knowledge the truth of which is independent of time, place, or circumstance and is obtained through grasping the cause. St. Thomas uses the word scientia, to express this very same thing. He says, science, to use our word obviously derived from Latin, is the knowledge of a thing through its proper cause. All three, Plato, Aristotle, and St. Thomas, will distinguish this perfect way of knowing from opinion, which we may indeed hold for reason, but which reason is not the cause of the thing. For example, one might opine, like Ion in the freshman seminar dialogue of the same name, that Homer is the best of all poets because they get bored out of their wits when hearing about any other poet. That's a reason, maybe not a good one, and certainly not the cause of the matter itself. Ion's unwillingness 
To hear any poet other than Homer could never be the cause of Homer possessing the art of poetry more perfectly than anyone else. Science, on the other hand, grasps the proper cause of the subject under consideration. This knowledge is so unqualifiedly perfect that it can be said of God himself, as Hannah in 1 Samuel proclaims, and I'll use the Vulgate here, Dominus Deus Scientiarum Est. The Lord is the God of sciences. Here's the context. There is no holy one like the Lord, Hannah says, no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of sciences, and by him actions are weighed. St. Thomas argues that since God has an infinite understanding of the cause of all things himself, he may be said to have science infinitely perfectly, which means in part that God does not have to reason out to conclusions. And so our participation in that science, namely sacred doctrine, may itself be called a science. As Zechariah says when he prophesies about his son John, and here again I'll use the Vulgate, but mostly English, and you, child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High, for you shall go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give scientia of salvation to his people, unto the remission of their sins. This may be enough to indicate how science leads to freedom. However, my topic tonight is about natural science, or what the Blue Book, a founding document, calls Science through experimentation. How is that an essential or even important part of a liberating education? In fact, it may seem strange, given what I've just argued about the nobility of science, especially of theology, standing above all other sciences as queen, that the one building on campus people commonly refer to using the word science is not the classroom buildings where theology takes place, or the chapel, where theology comes to fruition, at St. Albert's. And the one part of the program that gets the name science is not the noblest of sciences, but natural science, known many years ago here on campus as a laboratory. And you know how long in the tooth some tutors are when they refer to natural science as lab. The laboratory is the shortened version of the now obsolete English word laboratorium. And just as an auditorium is a place for an auditor, such as yourselves, a lab uh, laboratorium is a place for a laborator, a worker. Work. Isn't work thought to be opposed to leisure since the measure of its worth is something separate from itself, namely its product? But as I have suggested, leisure is the freedom required to pursue the highest truth and not merely a useful truth. Therefore, a place or building dedicated to the worker would seem strange on a quad dedicated to liberal education. Stranger still, since as it will often be pointed out, the whole program is difficult, requiring diligence and much work. And it seems unwise then for the college to refer 
to only one building where students work. Nevertheless, much of the work done in natural science entails consequences and risks that are best contained to one safe section of campus. Not everyone loves the smell of formaldehyde in the morning, <laughs> even if it is the smell of burning. So prudence would dictate isolating the fumes, flames, spills, and explosions. One might also point out the unique in the curriculum. This four-year course of studies uses special instruments, some large, some small, that need their own place for use, storage, and maintenance. Note, too, it's the only course that has student assistance and one tutor for making use of its instruments. The instruments have instruments. Allow me to offer a serious look at these instruments. I'm not talking about the assistants. For uh, in examining what they are in a general way and why we need them, we'll see or begin to see why natural science, the investigation of nature through experiment, is an essential part of a liberating education and why it gets the name science more visibly than all the rest, even more than the queen herself. In order to speak generally about the instruments of science, I will begin by considering an example. It's the proverbial elephant in the room. Not here, this is not even a room, but in St. Albert's. I'm referring to the 235-pound Foucault pendulum, which students tell me, almost as soon as they understand it, they forget. But like the sword of Damocles, this pendulum hangs as a reminder, not of peril, but of enlightenment. For it is one of the very few physical proofs by experimentation that the Earth rotates about its axis a proof Galileo sought diligently for and mistakenly presumed he had found in the motion of the tides. He did, however, suggest a more promising proof when he playfully imagined dropping a heavy object from the moon. And it's worth considering this just for a moment. The orbiting speed in miles per hour at such a distance as the moon's orbit would be far greater than anything close to or on the surface of the Earth, around 60 times greater. And so if the falling body maintained even a small part of that faster speed while it fell, it should run ahead of the spinning Earth. This suggestion of Galileo's inspired a couple hundred years later to try to, uh, others, sorry, to try this without having to arrange a mission to the moon. Instead, they used a high tower in Bologna, Italy, and found that falling bodies from a great height did indeed outstrip Earth by very little, millimeters, and not as consistently or predictably as they had wished. Later, at the beginning of the 20th century, drops were made in a laboratory that more closely matched the predicted deviation. Foucault's proof uses a very different strategy about which much has been written and debated. But for the purposes of this lecture, I will have to be brief. I hope not too brief. First, a few details about the pendulum. The inventor was Léon Foucault, a 19th century French physicist, who, while metalworking in his basement, 
discovered that a three-foot slender metal rod set to vibrating by accident in a lathe maintained the same vibrating direction even when rotated. This inspired him to see if he could do the same thing with an oscillating pendulum fixed in the lathe we call Earth. He saw the pendulum maintain the same direction of swing while the Earth rotated below it. Again, in his basement. I don't think his mother's. With this success, he quickly managed to convince the authorities to allow him to construct a large pendulum in the Paris Observatory, and then sent out the following invitation to all the famous scientists in Paris. Come see the Earth rotate. Tomorrow in the meridian room between 3 and 5. <laughs> Our pendulum is scaled down significantly from Foucault's public model, but is much larger than his basement model. The large brass sphere hangs from a cable attached to a pivot in the attic space above the ceiling. Below the pivot point, a couple feet, but still above the ceiling so that you can't see it, is a large circular electromagnet that maintains a constant oscillation of the pendulum without, however, directing its motion in any specific direction. The pendulum, in other words, is free to orient itself in whatever way it physically wants to. On the floor beneath the pendulum is a circle of pegs that get knocked over one after the other by the pendulum as it spins or seems to spin around to the right, clockwise. It takes nearly 42 hours and 30 minutes for all 36 pegs to get knocked over, barring earthquakes or curious children. We can be even more specific. From one peg to the next takes close to one hour, 10 minutes, 42 seconds. This period of time does not vary. The question naturally arises, what causes the pendulum to move around the circle of pegs? It does not seem to be in the nature of a pendulum to do this, since all it seems to be doing as pendulum is falling down and rising up. Moreover, what would make its circuit take the same period of time? And why one direction? Why not sometimes one way, sometimes the other? Another thing to ponder. The time of one cycle can be calculated using a formula containing the length of one day in hours and our latitude in degrees. And the more precisely we measure our latitude, the more accurate our measure of that cycle. Is that a coincidence? Why would our precise position relative to the pole or equator have an effect on the length of the cycle. Moreover, since there are now many Foucault pendulums worldwide, we see that those in the northern hemisphere twist right, but those in the southern twist left. Except for location, they're structurally the same. What might be the cause of this? Perhaps there's something pushing it around. Huh? The most likely candidate would be the air, but ours, like most, is indoors. And even if outdoors, it would take significant contortions of the air huh, to change directions regularly and circularly and have the strength to move such a heavy weight as a large metal bob. It seems we're left to conclude the appearance of the pendulum turning 
was caused by the earth itself turning under it. It may help to consider what is happening in light of the following hypothetical situation. Imagine yourself on a swing. And imagine the swing set up on a flatbed car of a train. You with me? All right. For simplicity, let the swing seat be suspended by a single rope like a tree swing and free to rotate at the pivot. Set yourself swinging in line with the train's initial direction of a straight line. Then imagine the train starting to veer off into a circular track. You still with me? If you keep swinging, what do you suppose might happen as the train turns? Will your swingings or oscillations remain in line with the train? Think about the common experience as a passenger in a moving vehicle of being pressed up against its side when it makes a sharp turn. Your body seems to want to keep its direction while the vehicle changes its own. Likewise, with a hypothetical train swing, the direction or plane of your swing would remain in one orientation while the train makes its circuit. If the train makes a complete circuit, then at some point it will also have turned completely under you, provided you continue to swing. In St. Albert's, too, the pendulum will keep to its own swinging direction while the earth turns under it. As long, of course, as we have supposed that the pendulum is free at the pivot point to swing in any direction relative to the Earth. If the pendulum could be set up at either of Earth's poles, then it would take about 24 hours or one sidereal day for the Earth train to turn completely under the pendulum. This was, in fact, it successfully tested at the South Pole in 2001. At the equator, the Earth does not spin under the pendulum, but simply carries it along. At our location, however, it spins, but takes nearly two days to complete a full spin under the pendulum's oscillation. There is a precise and mathematical formulation for the period of a complete circuit at any latitude. On the descriptive wall, uh, wall plaque near the pendulum, you may have noticed a mathematical equation. It's on the boys' bathroom sites, where I imagine most of the girls have seen it, not the boys. The number of degrees the Earth in one day will turn under the pendulum is equal to the sine of our latitude. It's a trigon trigonometric term, huh? Sine of our latitude times 360 degrees. This equation is called Foucault's sine law. Let me end here about the details. For our purposes, it's important to consider two things. First, like a telescope, the pendulum amplifies our power of observation and extends our experience beyond ordinary and common experience. The telescope extends the power of our vision by magnifying distant objects like planets and stars. A precisely made ruler or finely graduated thermometer gives us the ability to observe and measure differences that we otherwise wouldn't sense. Likewise, with Foucault's pendulum, we cannot feel the Earth's rotational movement, 
since it neither speeds up nor slows down, but maintains a constant velocity, or at least constant enough for our human level of sensitivity. But we can see it as clearly as we see someone approaching us from a distance while we stand still. In both cases, the two objects may be said to be moving, for example, getting closer with respect to the other, but only one in each case is undergoing the motion. In the case of my approaching friend, I can know I am at rest. In the case of the pendulum, we know by extending our own experience of being moved that the pendulum does not have a tendency to twist of itself. So by swinging without twisting, it reveals the rotation of the earth such that we can say we see the earth move as Foucault's invitation promised. Therefore, like the telescope, ruler, thermometer, and other instruments of the lab, this pendulum makes accessible to our senses what otherwise would remain hidden and confused. The second thing important to see in the pendulum as an instrument is its power to measure, for it not only reveals which subject must be the one undergoing a motion in a relative rotation, but it also reveals a quantity, namely our latitude, or in other words, our place on the globe above or below the equator. Now, what is it to measure? Is it not to reveal or make known the quantity of something? The ruler makes a length known, a clock makes a time known, the graduated cylinder makes a volume of liquid known, and so on. Each of these instruments takes a unit of a particular kind of quantity and applies it multiple times to reveal the total quantity. The ruler uses the inch or centimeter, the clock uses the second minute or hour, and the graduated cylinder uses the milliliter. What unit does our pendulum use? What same thing is repeated multiple times? Surely the knocking over of the pegs, one after another, at the same interval. That has something to do with the unit involved. And perhaps you've noticed the larger interval on the floor beneath the pendulum, namely the circle of the zodiac. This suggests a larger unit that measures the same quantity. But since the motion of the pendulum is crucial to it being an instrument, we have to take into consideration not only the angular shifting of the Earth, but also the time, particularly the time of a complete Earth rotation. And so by a calculation that involves a bit of trigonometry and hence goes beyond my talk tonight, we can say that when the Earth has made a complete rotation, but has shifted counterclockwise under the pendulum, say only 200 or so degrees, like ours, or so many pegs knocked down, our position on Earth is 34 degrees north. We can calculate that even more precisely. Conversely, since our campus shares the same latitude with the Komundo Islands of South Korea, then we know that the Earth would take the same amount of time to twist completely under a Foucault pendulum there as it does here. So this instrument establishes the subject of motion and helps determine, that is, measure both a location on the globe and a timing of emotion. It thus helps accomplish three goals characteristic of experimentation and hence of our natural science program. First, to see the intelligible 
immersed in a world which may at first glance or second glance seem confusing, shifting, and unpredictable. What is rotating? The pendulum, the floor, the earth, the sun? Second, to see more clearly by means of simplifying, in this case by means of a simple constant movement, and by abstracting, in this case, by constraining other natural factors, like the air from having a disturbing effect, thus allowing the quantifiable to manifest itself and giving us the opportunity to detect and measure regularity, patterns, and even beauty on the basis of which we form mathematical and general approximations we often call laws, in this case, Foucault's sign law. What kind of laws, or whether these are laws in some extended sense, or perhaps even metaphorically, are questions for another time. And then the third, these patterns in turn invite, if not compel, the experimenter, let us call him a law seeker, to wonder about their cause, which puts me in mind of something G.K. Chesterton once said. Now, mere repetition, he said, made things to me rather more weird than more rational. It was as if, see, having seen a curiously shaped nose in the street and dismissed it as an accident, I'd then seen six other noses of the same astonishing shape. I should have fancied for a moment that it must be some local secret society. So one elephant having a trunk was odd, but all elephants having trunks looked like a plot. I take it by more weird, Chesterton means wondrous, and more in need of an explanation and finding a cause or plot. For the merely accidental, we don't seek a cause. Now, since nature loves to hide, as that great, most ancient philosopher Heraclitus once said, not every sorry, repetition, not every repetition or pattern suggesting a plot will be as obvious as the nose on your face or the face of an elephant. You freshmen have already started to follow Fab as he spends countless hours in his laboratory, laboratory of the open field, risking failure, not to mention public scorn and even arrest as he hunts down clues nature has hidden about insect intelligence. To discover them, he must simplify and abstract, in a word, experiment, as he does with the pine processionary caterpillars in getting them to climb onto the circular rim of a terracotta planter from which they must learn to escape if they are to survive. Sophomores will study Kepler, fretting over an old persistent error in observing the orbit of Mars, an error equal to just eight arc minutes, which the unaided eye can barely make out. Some of you saw the great conjunction, it was called, of Jupiter and Saturn around Christmas last year. A beautiful sight, huh? They were six arc minutes apart at their closest and looked like a single planet brighter than Venus. Some observer, observers with younger eyes than mine claimed to see both planets. Nevertheless, to the naked eye, six or even eight arc minutes would seem hardly to matter, less than a hair's breadth. Yet, Kepler fretted. And what 
a glorious fret. It opened our eyes to the movement of the heavenly bodies and eventually of the entire universe. Ellipses replaced circles, accelerated motion replaced uniform motion, and the whole of the heavens was bound together in one gravitational dance. In Kepler's words, if you are weary, wearied by this tedious method, and let me tell you, you will be, <laughs> take pity on me, who carried out at least 70 trials of it with the loss of much time. And don't be surprised that this already is the fifth year since I have attacked Mars. If I had believed that we could ignore these eight minutes, I would have patched up my hypothesis accordingly. But since it was not permissible to ignore them, those eight minutes point the road to a complete reformation of astronomy. There's an old story that Aristotle tells about Heraclitus. He says, some visitors once wished to meet Heraclitus. And when they entered and saw him in the kitchen, warming himself at the stove, they hesitated. But Heraclitus said, come in, don't be afraid, there are gods even here. Aristotle goes on to apply this to the study of animals. In like manner, Aristotle says, we ought not to hesitate nor be abashed, but boldly to enter upon our researches concerning animals of every sort and kind knowing that in not one of them is nature or beauty lacking. The same could be said of Fobb's seemingly insignificant insects or Kepler's seemingly unimportant eight arc minutes or the slight flutter of the electroscope's gold leaf that the seniors will have to have a keen eye to see. Perhaps we should consider our laboratory a Heracletian kitchen and have his invitation above the entrance to St. Albert's with an important revision. Come in, don't be afraid. God is present even here. We might add, present not just in the explosions, fires, and other spectacles you will undoubtedly meet with in the lab, but even, mostly, in a still small voice. To quote Aristotle one last time, and somewhat at length, so far as in us lies, Aristotle says, we will not leave out one of the living things, no matter how insignificant it may first seem. For though there are animals that have no attractiveness for the senses, yet for the eye of science, for the student who is naturally of a philosophic spirit and can discern the causes of things, nature which fashioned them provides joys which cannot be measured. If we study mere likenesses of things and take pleasure in doing so because then we are contemplating the painter's or the sculptor's art which fashioned them, and yet fail to delight much more in studying the works of nature, though we have the ability to discern the actual causes, that, Aristotle says, would be a strange absurdity indeed. Wherefore, he concludes, we must not approach the study of the lesser animals with a bad grace as though we were children. Since in all natural things, there is something of the marvelous. To conclude, there are many reasons why experimental science, what we call natural science here, is essential to an education ordered to freedom. Indeed, even the freedom proper to the Catholic life. I have been considering only one of those reasons. 
The other reasons could each take a lecture to consider adequately. One such reason pertains to our role as citizens in a constitutional republic that has vastly increased its wealth, power, and store of knowledge through experimental science and its stepchild technology by marriage to mother necessity. If we are to participate in the self-rule that defines our nation, then we need to be able to size up today's political arguments which increasingly invoke science. But that requires an education about its principles, methods, and degree of certainty. That is a liberal education. Another reason involves a common interpretation of experimental science as revolutionary and antithetical to the perennial philosophy whose great teachers include Aristotle and St. Thomas. Such an interpretation often assumes as a first principle the denial that nature has purpose or acts for an end. Insofar as science proceeds mathematically, it may seem to have no use for purpose or goodness in making its calculations or formulating equations. Archimedes' scientific treatise on floating bodies that you freshmen will read soon enough determines with mathematical precision when a body would float in water and exactly how much would be submerged. But it never considers whether it's a good thing that some bodies float and some do not. Given he came from Sicily, the homeland of the mafia, if meeting a need was on the top of his mind, then the title would more likely have been on sinking bodies. <laughs> so if science proceeds mathematically and excludes the final cause, then it may seem to follow that the final cause is a useless fiction. A liberal education, therefore, would take time to evaluate such an interpretation and judge its validity. I've been trying to advance a reason here tonight for the necessity of science in liberal education that I think is more fundamental than these two and explains why the term science here names a whole set of courses and one building. As embodied intellectual creatures, we need tools and experimentation to extend our powers of observation and hence our knowledge beyond the general inquiries we first make in the philosophy of nature. These general inquiries begin with what is more intelligible to us and lead to principles, causes, and elements that flesh out those more certain yet less clear, if not vague, beginnings. Sophomores will consider the truth of Aristotle's definition of motion this year. It's no easy task. And the prize is a definition only in the most general terms. Yet juniors will see the power of that definition when they use it as a middle term to demonstrate God's existence. Nevertheless, as general, the definition is only a beginning. A beginning that asks, indeed begs, to be fleshed out. For what does it say about the complex marvelously organized motion we call behavior in animals, or the curious movement of the compass needle in the presence of an electrical current. Indeed, once having caught a glimpse of the divine behind all motion at a general level, would we not be inclined even more to see that infinite wisdom in the particular motions and natures that make up the physical world? In the beginning, 
The Lord God formed man of the slime of the earth and breathed into his face the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God, having formed out of the ground all the beasts of the earth and all the fowls of the air, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And Adam called them all by their names. You see, it's not only Heraclitus inviting us to enter deep into the world. The divine invitation I have just read to you from the book of Genesis defines our unique position and duty in the cosmos. We are kindred slime with the beasts, yet we, an image of the God, Lord God calling light day and darkness night, we, with that divine spark within us that is our intellect, this dust can find and call out in the dust the trace of God who has disposed all things in measure and number and 